back to the Lived Expertise is Greater Than Degrees podcast. I have a awesome guest on today that I've been following on Instagram for probably around five years. I have Elle Stanger on today, also known as the stripper writer. Um, and I couldn't be more excited to talk about all the things we have planned. So Elle, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, Kayla, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled you can still find me on Instagram at Stripper Writer because I am so severely throttled, limited, restricted, shadow banned on the naughty list. Um, for no good reason, I could tell you the two things I got punished for, and you'll you'll agree they're not they're not good. It's bad AI at the very least. Uh, so I am a sex education and self-help podcaster for the last six years out of Portland, Oregon. I have been a published adult internet nude model since 2005. I started doing touch work and adult entertainment uh, in person as a stripper in 2009. And besides COVID shutdown, I've been full-time active as a stripper for 14 years uh, I became certified by ASECT, which is the Association for American Sexuality Education, uh, American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Very important that I can remember the acronym. Uh, that was in 2021, and I was a certified holistic sex educator in 2018, I believe, uh, through the Institute for Sexuality. And I'm actually about to start teaching for them there. I also have worked for the city of Portland in different harm reduction capacities, doing trainings for people who are EMTs, firefighters, uh, police adjacent, probation, parole, a lot of medical and people with harm reduction backgrounds in sexuality. So specifically youth, queer, trans issues, especially related to people who are experiencing houselessness or domestic violence. I've worked as a facilitator in therapy groups for sex workers, not for a couple of years. And I'm always really happy to receive feedback from people around the world related to their experiences in sex work or trafficking or relationship. Um, and I forget like I there's one more thing, but we're gonna we're gonna remember it along the way. So I am very busy. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Yeah, I thanks for taking time out of all of that and that extra bonus thing. Do you have it? I remembered. I'm. It's funny. I'm making notes on the little post-its right now. Um, I am co-president of the Oregon Sex Workers Committee. We are a public education and I say limited resources and trainings uh, organization. We're a 501c3 at this time. Ah. Wow. Wow. I... I'm trying to think how we first got connected, but it it probably is related to kind of the sex educator ASECT route, but I'm not ASECT certified, but I was involved in their nominating committee back in the day. And I, <laughs> I know it's not a requirement to be certified to remember the acronym because it's quite a long one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I usually do uh, much better, but this is the first coffee of the morning. Oh, and for what it's worth, which I think is a little bit, uh, I I actually, as a child and a teen, thought I wanted to work in investigations or law enforcement. So I got my bachelor's in criminology from Portland State University uh, about 10 years ago now. And by that time, I'd been working in adult and sex work, and I understood that the systems were very corrupt, and I didn't want to be a part of them anymore. So I finished the degree, I sat through graduation, I could hear my 
my cohorts behind me talking about if they were going to apply to border patrol or homeland security. And I thought that is not for me. I hope I make money at the club tonight. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy for my pivot, but it's interesting because I do have a college background and I was a pretty uh, square kid with no arrests. I didn't even smoke weed until it was legal. Um, I, I can infiltrate some really normy and conservative spaces uh, I've also worked as a lobbyist in Salem briefly, but I really didn't like that at all. Um, that was about five or six years ago. So I have a unique ability that a lot of people who work in adult entertainment or sex work do not have. I have a privilege and a little bit of safety to go into spaces where they are typically hostile or discriminatory at the very least or dangerous at the very worst. And that's given me kind of an interesting um, insight and an edge to some of the work that I do. What a cool background to have go in your field and all the different parts of your work, because in criminology, you're learning about, you know, the laws, the criminal justice and air quotes system. And and then we have things like SESTA-FOSTA and things that you need to understand what the fine print is saying in order to protect yourself and your friends and your colleagues and I bet there are not that many people that have both experiences like you do. It's really interesting because I think you're right. Uh, when I started going through the sex educator training, I was the only known out sex worker that they had had at that time. There's been many more since, and I've been able to add to uh, a little bit of their catalog, which is great teaching about sex negativity and horophobia. And then there was another part of that when... When I enter into more conventional spaces, I see the bureaucracy and the processes and how they are ineffective. And I also see a severe disconnect between the people who truly believe they're helping while they are legislating harm. That's what I was going to say. I have explained FOSTA-SESTA to numerous district attorneys, assistants, or people that actually prosecute sex trafficking cases. They had never heard of it, not a single one of them. So after 2018, yeah, after May 2018, when SESTA-FOSTA was signed, I believe I believe it was April, actually, but May was when a lot of the changes started happening. Microsoft and, and Skype said that they were no longer going to allow nudity on uh, on Skype. Because what if you're paying for it? They didn't want to get slapped for that. That was the thing that actually happened. In May of 2018, Microsoft updated their terms of service saying that nudity and profanity would no longer be allowed on their Skype because they were afraid of people that would be going against FOSTA-SESTA by doing a crime, which could be some kind of prostitution. How would they know? Exactly. How would you know if someone's paying for it or not? Just like, how would you know at a glance if someone's being trafficked? There may be sometimes signs that might point to situations or there may not be because I'll give you an example in Portland, Oregon last couple of years, there was a Senate bill that said that people who work in bars and venues are now legally mandated to report suspected sex trafficking, which that's great. We all should report suspected sex trafficking. However, for the first time, it made them liable of some kind of punishment if they had not reported suspected sex trafficking. So a worker might want to cover their own ass and call the cops on a couple that might not make sense to them, which might be in a lot of discriminatory cases, an older white male and a younger black woman or woman of color. She may or may not be hustling him. 
let's assume it's consensual because actually a lot of sex work is. Most trafficking is in labor, textile, food, clothing, manufacturing. Okay. Uh, not sex work. So anyway, so our committee wrote to people on the OLCC, which is the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. And we said, your definition of trafficking that you have in your training that you are giving to people that now are expected to participate in this, your definition of trafficking is actually something that describes accurately what strippers do every single day, which is exchanging a service for a fee, a sexual service for a fee. So are people calling the OLCC on strippers? This doesn't make sense. There's a lot of gray areas in the laws because the laws are actually not based on adult consent. Prostitution laws are based on the idea that it is wrong to pay for or buy certain sexual services. It's not, does she not want to be there? Does he not want to be there? In a lot of cases, the people that are being arrested, no one's asking you work for yourself. Sometimes they're being asked. So I just want to really drive home prostitution. Anti-prostitution laws are created to tell people what they can and cannot do with their bodies. It actually makes it more difficult to focus on rape, trafficking, exploitation, murder, even when we are equating consensual buyers as criminals. It's a huge waste of resources. And a lot of people in conventional and criminal justice systems, their role has always been punitive to punish or to investigate. So I've literally had police tell me, investigators tell me, what would our role be then if we're no longer doing stings? And my answer to that is your role might have to pivot to where you're not doing decoy stings where you're arresting the guy who pulls up on his car and wants a hand job. You're not arresting him and giving him a $1,400 fine because you think he did something wrong. Now you have more resources to maybe open a shelter for all those teenagers that got kicked out of their houses for being queer. And now they're actually looking for places to work and live and sleep. And they end up doing sex work or selling drugs for someone because that's what happens to youth when they're manipulated by adults who can manipulate them. I threw a lot at you. No, I took notes. <laughs> um, I, okay, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is, yeah, just the transactional nature of sex work, because I often say when I'm giving like a presentation on this, that all sex is transactional, whether it is for a fee or whether it is for dinner or for love or for relationship status or for orgasm or companionship, all sex is transactional and we just get upset when money is involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're exchanging lots of things. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, that's a really interesting thing to start with when it, we think about like stereotyping and wasting resources and being punitive towards people who, like you said, a majority are involved consensually. And yeah. that consent is hard to measure, I guess, or hard to make assumptions about, but it's the most important part. It's way more important than the money that might be exchanged. And thinking about whether or not people are involved consensually, we, we also think about the people that aren't involved consensually and how that is a smaller portion that needs different supports. For years, for decades and purposely, misinformation has been shared by large organizations that are sometimes um, conservative 
religiously funded uh, with messaging that is just blatantly false, but also really difficult or impossible to measure uh, by the average person. So I can tell you as a adult from 18 as a nude model and then 22 as a stripper and 30, almost 37 now, I have worked with hundreds, 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 maybe a thousand and a half different people. And only maybe once, twice, three times did I either hear a phone conversation that led me to believe that someone was going to be very pissed if they did not make the money tonight. Or they told me my mom or my baby daddy or my boyfriend is going to be so mad I didn't make rent tonight to where it was like duress of fear. You know, they're not so. But then people who work with youth who are coming through shelters and unhoused, they only see the worst side of it where it's, again, youth that are trading sex or sex acts to sleep somewhere overnight or sleep for a while or food or drugs. So there is negative bias that happens. And then there's positive bias that happens to me too. But statistically, globally, and this is why organizations in harm reduction for decades again and around the world have recommended full decriminalization of sex work because it's easier to go after harm when you don't put consensual work into a black market or in the underground. Right. And then also because when there's situations where someone who is in this industry, in sex work, in adult work needs supports and they have no one to turn to because it's spun on them as it being their fault. If the work you're doing to survive is a crime or heavily stigmatized, the resources do not exist. And a lot of church-based anti-trafficking resources require that in order to receive any services from them, this might be baby food, diapers, transportation, legal, you know, whatever, you have to either claim that you are being trafficked, which leads to false statistics. Maybe you're just poor and you're working for yourself. Or you have to not do any consensual sex work at all or they won't have you. And what if that's your only income? And and a lot of times it can it can become, yeah, a catch-22 where you need the income, but also you need the resources. And so how then you're trapped in this kind of spiral of how to support yourself and your family while making sure that you can still support yourself and your family because you haven't been arrested or something. So my friend, I want to tell you really quick, my friend, Bella, she's in Florida. I can share this story. She's, she's, she's testified a few different human uh, rights commission events. So she's been arrested three times in three different prostitution stings where she thought she was doing a client job. And instead she was being surveilled by cops and then interrupted People do get sexually assaulted in these situations because who are they going to call? In at least one of those cases, she was forced to sit in the surveillance room and watch them do this operation to other people, at least one other person. She has three prostitution convictions as a result of this and a lot of fines. Her pimp, which she was never asked about, no one ever asked her, do you need any help? Are you working for someone else? Uh, her pimp has no convictions, no criminal record because he had uh, all of the documents and everything in her name. Financial abuse is very, very common in domestic violence. We know this, and this is how it can also relate to pimping or trafficking because the person pulling the strings will make it so that the people under their control are the ones leaving the money trail or could be held responsible. So they get away free and clear. So that is not uncommon. And in states like Florida, where they do 
anti-prostitution stings or in states like Texas where they made it a felony crime to try to pay for sex a couple years ago. It's such a waste of time and money. And it's also just these inhumane operations that are really meant to belittle people. Yes. And as you're saying, Florida, Texas, like it seems like states that kind of are always in the news for different kind of conservative sort of political Human rights things. violations. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. They tend to go, okay, they're criminalizing sex work. They're also not disability friendly, not queer friendly, not safe for people. Thank you for bringing up disability because I, so I have had a client, at least one through my sexting app who reached out and said, I'm a 40 something year old man. He ver like I've seen pictures of him. He verified his identity. And also in order to have an account, you have to verify your identity anyway. It's, it's very streamlined and controlled. We don't want minors on our apps. Um, he told me, he's like, I have this condition. Um, I'm under the care of my parents. I've never been touched. I would love a pretty lady to rub on me. Can we talk about what a blowjob is like? He told me he was suicidal. He told me that he had used a gift card that his aunt had gotten him to pay for this service. And I haven't heard from him in a year. I don't know if he's alive. So there's one person who, because of their developmental or their inherited disabilities, is being denied contact. And this is literally what surrogate partners do um, and sex workers can do and offer. Um, and then on the other end of that, I got a message from a woman. I've gotten this a few times, but the most recent one was in the state of Washington. She said I could share this where her intellectually disabled brother answered a escort ad or posted one, you know, didn't know it was illegal what he was doing. And then the house actually was raided by cops, smashed the fence, scared the shit out of the parents living there. This is taxpayer funded. Now he's facing, I don't remember, he's facing charges. So what a waste of time. I, that may, uh, both of those stories make me like feel emotional because we take for granted if somebody's had, you know, their own like sexual experiences, romantic experiences, we take for granted what life would be like without them if we wanted them. And so like asexuality, aromantic, the spectrum, that's all very valid. But for people who want experiences and can't access them because they live with parents or caregivers or family long-term because they have disabilities that make it so that they need care or need supervision or that people infantilize them and don't treat them like adults. It's, it can become a very lonely um, life, like a whole life. This, this one person's 47. And then also then they take matters into their own hands because nobody trusts them or expects them to want that stuff on their own. And so when they take matters into their own hands, they might go about it the right way. Like the first one who used a gift card because he's probably not in control of his own finances. So he had to find a way to sneak onto this mm -hmm. app to talk to you. And I'm so glad that he did, but then you wonder where he went. Well, if the gift card ran out, or might down the phone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much like parental control and some of it is helpful for safety, but a lot of it tends to be overbearing and um, unfair kind of monitoring of technology. And then you have the second person who, again, didn't have anybody to turn to, to ask questions to, and tried to figure it out on their own, didn't go about it 
in the best way or, you know, have these big consequences. Arguably, and- they went about it in like the, the most obvious way. Like, I'm looking for this. Yeah, I can pay for anything in America. You would think, right? Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> yeah, the most direct way. Right. And in in an effort to do it by themselves now created a situation where everyone in their family and community knows about it. Yeah. And so it's embarrassing. It's speaking of everyone in their family and community knows about it. So often when you see a news story about a sex trafficking sting, look and see what the charges were against those individuals. Because if the only charges named are solicitation of prostitution, it was not a sex trafficking sting. It was an anti-prostitution sting. And these names and faces of these men who tend to be lower socioeconomic status and men of color, because these are the men who have less resources to go on escort websites, which do exist, but are expensive. So the people arrested tend to be already marginalized, but then to call them falsely sex trafficking participants, people lose their jobs, lose their families because it's not clarified. This is very common. The the huge 49, you know, person so-called sex trafficking sting in the beginning of this year, 2023, uh, I think in Dallas was viral. Hundreds of thousands of reposts on so many different platforms. And I looked at it and I was like, that was a prostitution buy. Yeah, like the media can swing it in different ways. And it it is never in the favor of sex workers or in people who are just trying to, you know, make connections. I I think about um, for a lot of my clients, I think about their finances a lot because most of my clients are neurodivergent um, adults. And when it comes to finances, we always talk about ethical porn and safe toys and, and, you know, like respectable forms of, uh, arousal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all that stuff is important because you have to pay the people that are putting effort into it and it's their job and sex work is work. But also for my clients that don't have access to their own money, buying a hundred dollar plus vibrator or paying for porn is is literally impossible because they have to ask their parents for money. And usually if parents or guardians or whoever gives them money, it'll be twenty dollars cash for pizza or something or going out to dinner. It's not a credit card. It's not something that you can use at your own discretion a lot of times. And then it, it creates really unsafe uh options for people Mm -hmm. and quality sex toys are typically incredibly expensive because the materials are made better and chain supply reasons somebody sent me a link to uh i don't know how to say it t-e-m-u timu it's oh getting that bad so it's like sheen was found to have and still are probably forcing their workers to work for, I think like one day off a month, people are wearing diapers because they're not allowed long enough potty breaks. Like you can tell I'm a parent. I just said potty break. Uh, So Timu or however you say it um, looks like the same low, low, low quality stuff. So my friend sent me a link. He's like, this site makes sex toys. Look at the prices. And it's like $7 and 49 cents. And I, my literal response to him was, a lot of poorer people are going to get infections and not understand why. 
Yeah, it can cause big issues. And like, I remember hearing this joke multiple times that like anything's a sex toy if you're brave enough. <laughs> a person like Athena said that, okay? Because you don't know about UTIs, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. You're thinking anything can be an insertable and that is false. And it's scary when it comes to things like cheap sex toys, dildos, vibrators, whatever, because if you're sticking something inside your body it has to be of a certain caliber and it has to be cleanable. And so many of those things aren't. So then it's like, well, okay, are we going to put a condom on this thing and do this every time? And people get creative because they don't have other options, but then people can have like noticeable, like BV yeast infections, like people around them end up knowing because they're not taking good care of themselves because they don't have an option to. Yeah. I, feel like I had a thought to that and I lost it. My apologies. Um, oh, and what we're talking about when we say high caliber sex toys, people, we mean how porous is the toy. So, right. If it's like made of stone or glass, that's not porous. It might not be glass. If it's cheap, it might be a synthetic and you don't know. But if it's like rubber, that's going to soak up moisture like your body fluids and bacteria, and it's not going to come out. So we're talking about porousness. So you probably want like a silicone toy and pure silicone toys are actually pretty hard to find. And a lot of companies lie, they'll use blends. Right. And then also if you use different kinds of lube, it can degrade the, the materials that it's made with and make it not more porous anyway. So you, I, using sex toys is not as simple as it seems. Like I, I often talk about how when I'm a sex educator and you see sex educators on Instagram, it's like, here is my dildo collection and here is my lingerie and my photo shoot and I'm like that stuff is awesome I love following those accounts and cheering them on but that's not what I ended up doing I I ended up working with a lot of people who are registered or at risk of becoming registered sex offenders because wow. of the way the systems don't allow for people with disabilities to be sexual you might want to look into um, Shania Luther is her name. And the website is amongfriends.org. I cannot remember her qualifications, but she does training to people that are in caregiver situations about how to manage like masturbation and hygiene for their clients. Yeah, exactly. Teenagers that want to masturbate and don't know when it's appropriate or how to clean up. Right. Because often I get referrals for a parent or a school that's like, help. We have this student trying to take pictures of classmates or somebody's getting an erection in, in, in school, or, you know, they don't recognize the time and the place. And I'm like, I, I'm happy to jump in there because that's important, but it's, it's not as sexy as it seems when you say you're a sex educator. Oh yes. Um, no, not at all. No, I, I love playing the game. Let's try to diagnose that vaginal irritation with my friend at the coffee shop. Cause they're like, they're like, I, I can't get an appointment yet. And I don't know who I'm like, well, tell me your symptoms <laughs> Yeah, you on the strap or no. <laughs> and it's so good. Cause that's, but that's also like lived experience. I think all this stuff that we've been talking about, you don't learn any of this in a public or private school or college or anything. None of this stuff is talked about even in sexuality programs. Like you said, you were the only out sex worker in your program. And, and now you're going on to be a teacher, which is the best full circle situation. And there's, there's other students that are out now and have been for apparently years since. So um, I was right on the cusp of the new beginning of that. And that feels really good. 
Oh, but that's huge. And it takes one person to make it okay to kind of set the tone for other people. I really, I, and I think that might've been, I I think I might've been the first person that trusted uh, Dr. Roz, the program director to ask, because based on the stuff she was saying, I can, I can screen for a sex negative person or a sex work negative person really quickly. And I was like, I think she's safe. And she was, my question to her was, am I wasting my time and money if I'm not going to get certified because of my previous erotic work, some of which is currently illegal in this country? Right. And, yeah. and a brave conversation that you had to have because she could have been disappointed or upset or kicked you out of the program or said, yeah, you're wasting your time. Get lost. And <laughs> you know, that... no. Do you know the, the story of Nikki Gilliland? No. So we real don't. quick. Yeah. Nikki, Nikki is probably about 40 now about my age. Uh, so Nikki did porn from the ages of 18, 19, 20, 21. She was a child of the foster system. She had a really good time doing porn. Her first lesbian scene was with iconic Nina Hartley. If you don't know who that is, people look it up, right? You do. Um, no bad times. Well, you know, whatever. She, she doesn't look back on her adult work negatively, but she did a few years, won some awards, uh, paid a bunch of bills, was self-sufficient and said, what next? So she pivoted to nursing, she worked in an ambulance. Yeah, she had rave reviews from her coworkers. Years and years uh, said she helped participate, you know, in the saving of countless of lives and loved the work. She wanted to further her education and get herself out of a domestic violence situation with her daughter's dad. So she decided to go to nursing school in Southwestern Oregon Community College in Coos Bay. When the program director, who is still teaching, found out that she had done legal adult porn over a decade ago... She accused her of plagiarism, changed her grades, and flunked her out of the program. Nikki almost killed herself. She became houseless, and her children were taken away and put into foster care, one of which suffered uh, abuse, maybe both of them, but one of them, she said, a year after she got it back, the child still was nonverbal because of that. Um, and actually, they tried to give the kids to the ex-husband first, even though he had two, not charges, but two convictions of strangulation against their mother. Because the community didn't want a whore to have her kids or to sully the nursing program because the nursing program was very well connected to the social work program. And Coos Bay, Oregon is a very small, very conservative town. So she was literally spit on in public. She lost everything. She somehow survived. She sued Southwestern Oregon Community College last year um, on a Title IX discrimination case she won part she partly won but now they're challenging it so no funds of the 13 million have been awarded which would have gone to pay her lawyers and to reestablish her life she's not safe in oregon she moved to boston uh she's a legal law student now so um but they're still arguing and she's never the teacher's still teaching you know not enough people know about this and nikki didn't get any monetary justice this shit still happens. And I get messages from people all the time that say, I got kicked out of my nursing program. I got kicked out of my, you know, whatever training program because they found out about my legal or my previous work in adult. So how do people expect us to supposedly, you know, do better or elevate ourselves out of this stigmatized industry if we're literally not allowed to sometimes? Right. It's so backwards. They go, don't do that. But also you can't be hired to do anything else now. 
that's that's your option. So then you turn back into doing it and then everything in your life becomes like continued risk weighing because you you have to protect yourself in the process. That's a that's a heartbreaking story and it's so sad that she's had to relocate and change her life and everything and it's like yeah from the start the school didn't want to damage their reputation but like good job you did it to yourself. <laughs> yeah. So I I enjoyed watching that teacher woman squirm from the back because I got to sit in just day one of the days of the trial. I went down a couple hours to Oregon to be there with Nikki. And um, it was fun to watch her kind of squirm a little when it was, you know, testifying, going through documents and her changing grades and reading the email thread. And but it's just not enough. <laughs> and these people exist in every single walk of life. Yeah. In every industry, like there's a big thing, there's a lot of unrest in my occupational therapy field with like a professor um, being fired from her position unfairly. And there's been a lot of unrest. And then our professional organization is a mess in handling it. And our next conference is in Florida and people are upset about going to Florida. And so not there's, safe. yeah, and it, it's not safe. And then organizations try to pick certain people to be spokespeople for like uplifting things and it's it's tokenizing too and then nobody feels like you can trust your professional organizations or like this like your school or your career because if you have a license at stake it makes it all riskier mm -hmm. um I also wrote down earlier to talk about kind of that mandated reporter thing so we you brought up how people became responsible for reporting suspected trafficking. And for a lot of people with licenses, like the social workers and nurses, the OTs, there's also a conversation happening right now around being mandated reporters in places where things that are considered illegal are really not fair. Um, and so like Florida, Texas, if you had to be a mandated reporter, if someone is in gender affirming care because it, the state has labeled it like self-harm or something, then, then you have to weigh what's my license versus my like humanity. And it's really challenging. And I just wish the powers that be would stop making us have those internal debates because it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <sighs> um. So a lot of this stuff has been so enlightening and thank you for being here. I also want to ask out of all of this stuff or everything that you're doing, what is something that you learned in school that has helped you navigate your life and your work? Learning how to present information in a more coherent way, learning how to teach. So that can be very literal, like if you write on a board or you have a presentation, use a color that most people can read because of ability awareness uh, or sensory overwhelm. Don't use multiple colors. Um, if I'm having a guest on, look up how I pronounce their name beforehand. Um, don't make your slides too wordy. So like what I learned literally that was most helpful for me is presentation, especially as someone who is autistic and has ADHD. Uh, I can hyperfixate and give you exactly what I think you want, but maybe you were just asking me the weather, not for an analysis of the next week. Um, yeah, so I'm really grateful to that. And that is really only stuff that I learned 
in the last five or six years. Well, that stuff is like thinking about accessibility and inclusion. You either learn it from watching other people role model it or from your own experience or from somebody telling you, hey, I would appreciate if you just use black on white or just keep it simple or let's turn the lights off and make it a little bit more relaxing in here. And mm -hmm. and it's very interesting and say so you're probably an expert in all the sensory details of life from, from from being autistic, from being neurodivergent and and also from being, I would guess, an expert in just setting the mood. <laughs> try. I try. <laughs> I really try. I joke to, you know, it's funny because in the strip club, I will get people who have listened to the podcast or on the sexting app, I will get people that found me on Instagram, you know, or whatever. So I'm kind of, that's why I asked you at the beginning, like, how long have you been with me and where? So I know what you know, because it's a lot of code switching sometimes if I'm on my sexting app and I'm pretending to be, you know, hot mommy, like at home versus I need to update my other subscriber page. And let's talk about these local laws that are really, really not good right now. So it's kind of funny because I'll get sex clients sometimes that, I definitely lose money because they're like, oh, you're political. But then I attract resources and networking and, and other clients and long-term clients that are like, oh, you align with my beliefs and you're consistent and I feel safe with you. Well, and it's less, less mysterious, like a mystery can be erotic, but it can also be threatening. I try to make sure my transactions are never open-ended. Like we know how long the Zoom is going to go for or the visit. We know what it's going to cost. <laughs> yeah. Then everybody can plan their life around it. And and you've set the boundary in advance so that you can keep yourself in the situation that you're expecting. Safer. Right. It, it really is. It comes down to safety. And it's kind of this is a sex work thing that is like a privileged sex worker thing. I can screen my clients very heavily because I can afford to say no to more of them. Uh, people who really need money and it's just worth a gamble to see what you can get by with without them like coming at you too hard. So it's like, yeah, I don't like the way this client is touching me. He has scratchy nails, but like the price is twice as much as I need to make for tomorrow. So like, maybe I'm just going to do this. Um, so, you know, again, capitalism is complicated, but I'm lucky that I can, yeah, screen really heavily. So if someone's freaking me out just from the get-go, I'm like, well, I guess I'm not going to make money in this situation, but, you know, I have options. And again, that's why we don't want to limit people's options. Right. So everyone can choose what works for them because there's lines that pretty much are universal and then there's lines that are more personal. And so trying to figure out what works for you and what works for other people and hopefully giving people the opportunity to have all of that. And that comes with decriminalization, legalization, and treating your job like a job that anybody could have. Like it's like it's normal. Um, I think about often when it comes to sex work and disability, this isn't the planned question, but I, I think about it in both ways because I work with mostly neurodivergent clients with like intellectual developmental disabilities. Like we talked about the person that you were chatting with and yeah, wanting, wanting to be touched, wanting to have sexual experiences and not having a chance so far, like naturally in your own life. And then I also follow people and read about people who are disabled 
and in the sex work industry. So like both providers and kind of um, customers. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting to think about how those two kind of interplay and how other countries might be doing it better. Like I know in Andrew Gerza talks about it a lot in Canada and there are some positive things that have happened in Australia recently in terms of like allowing people to spend their money on whatever they want to spend their money on. But we're very far from that in, in this country. Mm -hmm. I get propositioned or solicited for paid sex probably at least three times a week when I'm in the strip club. And honestly, that would be a gold mine if that was my hustle. <laughs> um, don't have sex in the strip club, by the way. No one's going to like it. Like the management's not going to like it. I tell, I tell people we're not built for ejaculations here. So no, I don't do that here. <laughs> Quite honestly, can't take that kind of body fluid here. Um, so I think about there is such a desire because I get asked all the time and I know a lot of my coworkers get asked all the time and I wish that I could, and sometimes I have referred them to someone else. I say, I wish I could because a lot of people I know stopped working sex after COVID uh, the local economy in Portland has kind of dried up in some ways, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, but yeah, people ask me all the time and they're not, they're not creepy, monstrous, you know, gnarled, like crusty old men. Like there's some pretty hot dudes that are like, or women actually that are like, yeah, I travel a lot. You smell nice and we're connecting nicely, like blah, 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 whatever. Why are we criminalizing that? Well, and it, a lot of times I think, yeah, we get sold the the storybook version of it or the not storybook version, but with like just this hyped up model of, yeah, that it's creepy and that it's unfair and that it's like so like salacious. And meanwhile, it's just people who want to have some companionship and everybody's aware of what the exchange is and that it's time and companionship and maybe sex for money, but that it shouldn't be such a scary thing. I often say to like professionals who are scared about their family members or their clients having sex. And I'm like, what if you didn't, if you didn't go home to somebody at night, if you didn't go home and, and have somebody to watch TV with, like, wouldn't you miss that too? That's part of being a human for most people. Mm -hmm. Definitely. How are we um, we are wrapping up, I think, but I, I wanted to ask also, what's a lesson that you've learned outside of school that um, has impacted your life and career? Hmm. Formal lesson, informal lesson. Okay, lesson I've learned outside of formal training, okay. Oh my God, so many things. And I should have mentally prepared. I, I feel like I would have just been able to pick something, but now I'm like, oh, where do I begin? Um, the processes in place often do not make sense. And some of them have just been in place for so long that they're difficult to change. And it's not that they're helpful. Um, I have learned that technology is advancing way faster than the laws are being adapted. You probably know there's generally no laws on the books against upskirt photos or taking photos of people out in public without their permission, because the idea has been the uh, level of ex expectation of privacy for so long. And these laws are written before cell phones. 
So the idea is once you leave your house or a reasonable, you know, area of privacy that you don't have the right to refuse someone taking a picture of your underwear, apparently. Um, which actually happened to me and my kid in a target some years ago. I think this guy was trying to get a picture of us from behind. He didn't get like an up thing, but we were actually wearing dresses because it was a hot day. I was wearing shorts. That's a whole other story too. I definitely followed him around for a while, cursing him out. She was little enough. She didn't know what was happening. She was just looking at the colors and stuff. Um, and then about a year later, I learned about a man who had been a serial offender at the targets and the Fred Myers in this area. And I was like, I wonder if it's him. I couldn't find a photo. I didn't look that hard. Anyway, so I have learned, yeah, you can't trust a lot of the laws and practices in place. And in terms of online harassment, stalking, um, content being stolen, being harassed, having your content sent to family members, there's not really any laws and protection for that either. At the very best, you can contact private organ, you know, companies and organizations that specialize in content removal, the DCMA. Uh, takedown notices. So the police really can't help you in a lot of situations. And my last thing I would like to say, if we want to, if we want to improve these systems, we really need to look at law enforcement, not as law enforcement, but as community safety. Yeah, because words really do matter. And so thinking about, yeah, enforcing the laws will also, if half the laws are way too old to be helpful to people, um, then it's it doesn't create a safer society for anyone. So that's that's interesting. And in community safety is a lot better. And I think a that's been such an important conversation the last several years, like thinking about like mass shootings and stuff like that. And I mean it all you can't talk about sex without being political. So it ends up being related to so quickly to like queer inclusion, disability inclusion, like reproductive rights, gun violence, like everything ends up being looped in together because that's the way our society is. Yeah, it is. And it was designed that way. The laws were always made by people who wanted to control reproduction and production. Um, I mean, the first thing that was taxed was salt not prostitution, but ever since, yeah, salt was the first commodity to be taxed and sold. What? Uh, no. Yeah. I mean, we preserve our food in it and we can't live without it. And it so, tastes good. <laughs> there's, and it tastes good. It makes everything taste better. Uh, so for, I think, 5,000 years and an elder in the queer um, sex positive community, and she's a clinical sexologist, her name is Elizabeth Allen. Uh, she was explaining this to me on the phone yesterday where she's uh, basically telling me to not get too bogged down with the frustrations of progress against decriminalization of sex work here locally, because she said this struggle has been going on for 5,000 years. Laws were determined what organs you could sell, if you could sell your blood, if you could sell your children, if you could sell your wife, if you could sell your cattle, if you could sell herbs that you grew in your yard. There's always been laws about what you can sell and Sex has always been kind of on that list since we had taxation. Because it's something that people will spend on. It's it's also something that improves your life for mm -hmm. most people. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, that's really interesting. And that's something I've been trying to learn from activists in different like political and local sort of campaigns is that you have to 
focus on, you know, the problems in order to ask for the changes, but you also have to kind of be gentle with yourself in the process because it's really hard work. It's really, really hard to be an activist and an educator and have all these different arenas that you're focused on because you have to take care of you too. And you can't compare your personal progress with like the actual world history. <laughs> mm, yeah. Context is really important when people are like, oh, porn is, you know, leading to traffic. And I, I think about how maybe these people didn't have the same history class I did, or they don't know or remember that people have been selling their children for thousands of years. Wow. So. Like even, even something like a dowry, like in marriage is kind of, kind of an interesting thing to think about too. It's yeah. How like, hot is your daughter? How much land do I get? Yeah. How much do you have to give somebody to take her off your hands? <laughs> and yeah. And then like misogyny and sexism and all those sorts of things all come in too. So I know everybody has to go and follow your Instagram and listen to your podcast, They Talk Sex. Where else should people find you that we can put into the show notes? Yeah, lstanger.com is my anchor landing site where hopefully I can never get kicked off by Zuck or Musk. Uh, so that is not updated often, but it leads to everywhere else you need to go. And that means podcasts, that means porn, that means writing, that means schedule. So find me lstanger.com. All right. Thank you so much, Elle. I'm going to stop recording, but thank you for being here. And I hope everybody checks you out and finds your other pages. Mm -hmm.